Hello there, and welcome to a special edition of the Suffolk Money Podcast, where we look back on some of the memorable moments in 2022. I'm indebted, as always, to our guests who joined us last year. And the one thing that they've all had in common is that they've been inspiring. Our contributors invariably show huge determination and spirit to overcome the hurdles placed in their path. These podcasts, supported by Kingsfleet, focus on the fact that there are only three things you can do with money. You can spend it, you can save it, or you can give it away. So we talk to businesses, charities and financial experts, all based in this beautiful county that we're lucky enough to call home. First, we hear again from Sean Hubworth, who's both a midwife and a photographer. Her talent behind the lens got noticed on Instagram, and her followers grew from 700 to 90,000 overnight. Have you ever considered turning your hobby into a business? A combination of factors led Sharon Cudworth to do just that after her photography skills became noticed by Instagram. Sharon joined us in February to tell me more. For me, it was about my daughters and my lifestyle and and just and and actually I found that I was quite creative and I didn't realize that I was just you know working my job as a midwife and I ha- didn't realize I had any kind of creative bone in my body to be honest so, so again just just sorry to interrupt you I was just described that a little bit more when you say you were creative or you were taking pictures of your family and your lifestyle obviously we're doing this through the medium of sound it's quite difficult to describe um, necessarily a picture but what what would you have done in that situation so it was just trying to use light in different ways, different perspectives, um, in, encapsulating beautiful things like the scene that they were in. Um, it wasn't just taking photos of my children, because of course, lots of parents do that. We all do that, but it was about having an aesthetically pleasing grid. So I would be looking at um, the scene that they were in and just photos of, different perspectives and and just really capturing the beauty of it really and I found myself getting lots of followers and lots of people saying oh I'm really loving your work and I was thinking well I'm just taking photos of my children and it was then that I received um, a message or an email I can't remember now because this was back in 2014 from Instagram direct um, saying to me that they absolutely loved my Instagram account and that they wanted to do a feature for Mother's Day in the UK And I thought, wow, you know, I was actually really um, overwhelmed because I just thought, you know, I'm just taking photos of my children. But of course, I jumped at the chance because I thought it would be an amazing opportunity. And I I was obviously just really pleased that 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 was something that they wanted to kind of feature me for. And so I got um, invited down to the Instagram hub in London, which was an amazing experience. And what, what's that like oh you've just got this image of it. it's a bit like google stuff with slides and indoor putting greens and things well because it's a tech company but what what's it like what's that all about it was fine it, it was <laughs> you know it was it wasn't anything that i pictured in my head really it was it, literally having a chat with a lady the lady that had contacted me um and just kind of you know really kind of her doing the same thing sort of talking about how i came to have this grid and these photos of my children um and what kind of made me think about it so it was it was really lovely just to kind of talk about um how it started and and how it became like this 
And of course, what I didn't expect though, is that when they did the feature, which was included some of the photos, there was a particular photo that I'd taken of my daughter holding some flowers. And I think because of the concept of Mother's Day being about giving flowers on Mother's Day, that was why they'd found that photo. And I think they possibly found it from a hashtag as well. So obviously hashtags are very important in terms of using things like Instagram because it's only visual. So people, and this is for businesses and things as well. So I was discovered from a hashtag that I think I perhaps had used Mother's Day UK or something. And so this feature went out and it went on their, their Instagram page and they have something ridiculous like 200 million followers. I don't know, actually, I haven't looked, but they have, a, I mean, Instagram, it's Instagram. And my photo and my kind of wording, you know, my interview had gone and you could then click on through to the actual um, interview, the blog on their website. And I think I went from something like, 700 followers which at the time I remember thinking this is amazing to around 90,000 followers um, overnight and loads and loads of people messaging me and saying oh my goodness this is like crazy and so I had my little five minutes of fame which was which was I don't know it's a bit of a mixed bag because at the at first I just thought it was amazing and then actually the reality of it was was that my account was open and I had lots of lots of people looking at it and of course they were photos of my children and then I was having I was being bombarded by companies that were wanting me to collaborate with them and and at first like this is back before the day of influencers that you know there's all influencers now and they're all doing these ads and they have to be quite particular on that um, but at first I, I was saying yes, but then I found myself photographing things for companies that they were giving to me that meant that it wasn't me that I was doing it anymore. I was taking, I was being directed and it felt, it just felt um, a bit contrived. So I just felt that that wasn't really me. But what I did realize was that actually I was quite good at photography. And I thought to myself, actually, why don't I venture into, um, I think that Christmas, my husband had bought me my first DSLR. So my first digital camera, because prior to that, I was using a mobile phone. Um, And so I I thought I want to take this further. I actually quite enjoy photography and the technical side of it. And I was searching YouTube videos and I was just learning the exposure triangle and wanting to push it further and further. And I just became, I think I'd done my midwifery degree and because I wasn't studying anymore, for me, I was like, I need some more. I need to, I love learning. And um, I found myself suddenly, you know, I was working night shifts and then on my date because midwifery shifts are 12 and a half hours, you can do your full-time hours across three days, which then essentially you have three or four days often to recover. But I found myself on those days having some time and that was what I started to do. Um, So I started photographing friends and family and taking it a little bit further and everybody was like, oh, can you photograph us? Can you photograph us? And it literally just started from there. So that's midwife and photographer Sharon Cudworth delivering babies and some fabulous pictures to thousands of followers on Instagram. Fashion is the common theme for all our guests and none more so than Ipswich butcher George Debman. And it's a passion shared by his young colleague, Annie, 
who's gone from Saturday girl to full-time apprentice, benefiting from George's desire to see young people succeed in the butchery business. I went along to the shop to meet both of them. Butchery is important to me. Um, it's a trade that um, certainly for many, many years, you know, has diminished, not people coming into the um, trade. And the closest you could be to being a butcher was being a chef. I'm say, when my son and daughter were looking at careers and all that, I used to go to careers conventions. Have you got anything to do with butchers? Well, no. There was nothing, nothing there at all. And at the um, same time, one of the things that I'd like to see, and that's one of the reasons why I'm very, very keen, obviously with teaching Annie, um, is butchery becoming a recognised trade. Mm -hmm. um, and with, you know, with being like elected as national president, which I'm very, very proud of, is the fact that in my term of office I'd like to see um, us as an organisation getting out there promoting butchery for youngsters because they're uh, desperately crying out for butchers mm -hmm. and you know it's hard work mm. you know it's not an easy job but at the same time it's very very rewarding indeed. And that's the Craft mm. Butchers Association? Yes the National Craft Butchers um, when I like left college, um, my father um, took me along to a butcher's meeting in Colchester and in those days it was like the National Federation of Meat and Food Traders which was a bit of a mouthful <laughs> and over the years you know, I went to meetings because my father said it's very very important you liaise. We actually had an organisation here in Ipswich but it was in name only and Sadly, when the secretary in Colchester died, um, they couldn't find anyone to be secretary. So I took, you know, I said, "Well, I'll do it." And I thought, "Well, being secretary, I better go to the AGM." And they love me. I'm going to say it was at Harrogate and um, great big hall, and there weren't too many people there. And I'd taken my mum with me, and uh, I had this speaker from the Meat Livestock Commission who promote meat. And he, you know, gave this um, speech and all that, and no one said anything. And uh, I stuck my hand up. He goes, "Yes." I got up. <laughs> I just said, "That's the biggest load of rubbish I've heard." I suggest you come down to the shop floor and learn what real butchery is. And all of a sudden, people are up, getting up, and cl you know, like clapping. And uh, <laughs> on the following right, yeah. the following day, walking around the um, trade exhibition. Um, people were actually coming up to me and saying, you actually said what we were thinking. Yeah, I'm an apprentice. I started in June, July time last year, um, after I finished my A-levels, um, and I've, well, I've been here, yeah, doing it now. Can I just ask what A-levels you did? Uh, French, politics and geography. Okay. Yeah, oh, completely that's, different. That's useful. <laughs> <laughs> I've got them, that's the main thing. You have, that's well, well done for doing them. Mm. Um, so what was the appeal? What, what um, struck you about butchery then as being something to pursue? I think it, it's a funny really because I, I think I worked for George beforehand. Um, I started as, as a Saturday girl with George um, and I used to just come in on a Saturday, do the washing up and things like that. And, over time, um, I kind of, you know, was more interested in what they were doing. I liked watching what George was doing when he was doing his butchery, what the other people in the shop were doing. And then I think 
When I came to the end of my A-levels, I kind of wasn't really sure what step I wanted to do. I just knew I didn't want to go to university because I yeah. couldn't do that. Um, and I thought to myself, actually, I really love the work that I do and I love watching what they do. And I think I'd just love to do it myself. So I kind of took that leap and I said to George, um, what would you do if I told you that I wanted to become a butcher? <laughs> and he said, I'll take you on. I'll, I'll well, you know, there you take go. you on as an apprentice. Yeah. So your job offer there and yeah, then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was <laughs> brilliant. It's <laughs> very straightforward. <laughs> Lovely. I love serving customers. Um, the interaction with people is great because you, there's where we, we are here, we, as George has mentioned, we're in a really good community and um, the people that come in are just brilliant. They're so lovely and there's this sense of like, not, I don't want to say a butcher's family, but we are like a big old family and I think everybody that comes in, they know us, they know who we are, they say hello, we can have a laugh and a joke with them and it's great and I think having that interaction with people is, is really, really good. That's Ipswich butcher George Debman and his young apprentice and knowledgeable Apprentice Annie. You're listening to a review of some of the highlights from the Suffolk Money podcast supported by King's Fleet from 2022. Next up, it's Mandy Small, who talked so openly about what a family goes through after losing someone to suicide. Mandy's former husband, Chris, who'd been in the military, took his own life in 2015. It was, as you can imagine, a massive blow to Mandy and her young son, Jay. But it prompted them to do so much to help others. Mandy's written a book about how they rebuilt their lives. She also supports other veterans who hit crisis point, And Jay has become a prolific fundraiser. And this was just a small part of Mandy's story. They come home for two weeks at some point during their tour um, and just have two weeks. It's R&R, so rest and relaxation, apparently. Um, but the phone phone calls started to get more and more rare and, and shorter. He would speak to Jay and then speak to me for maybe a minute and then say he had to go. So he came home on his R&R &R and I knew he wasn't right, but I just tried to give him a, a relax in two weeks and let him sleep, let him have a catalogue, do whatever he wanted to do, make it all about him. Um, and that continued when he went back to Afghan and, you know, letters were very, very sparse, although we kept up the communication from our end and welfare packages, which I'm sure all the lads enjoyed. But when he came home, you know, we were so excited. Jay, Jay was bouncing off the walls because daddy's coming home. I was excited to see Chris. Six months is a long time. But the moment he got off that coach and I saw him look at Jay and biggest smile on his face when he saw Jay but when I looked into his eyes there was nothing absolutely nothing and I knew the man that had returned from Afghan wasn't the man that had left mm. you know, seven, sort of six seven months previous but I mean in all honesty I had no idea how much our life was going to change my Chris is still somewhere out in Afghan the Chris that came home was so closed off. I found out things that he went through out there since he died. You know, I, I had no idea what he'd actually been through. But my Chris would have maybe not told me everything, but he would have opened up to me. Mm -hmm. And But, you know, we still saw, we saw glimmers of him. He opened that door slightly 
sort of opened it enough so that we knew he was still there. Mm. And I, th I think the big thing to remember is that, you know, PTSD trauma, it's an illness. It's a brain injury. Mm. And it, there, there are a lot of things Chris did between coming home from Afghan and when he died that, you know, they weren't right. And I think a lot of people know that they weren't right. But also, I'm not excusing his behaviour in any shape or mm. form, but there are symptoms of PTSD. Subsequently, were um, those that he was with, were they aware that something was different with him? Or were they just having to deal with their own trauma in their own way that you just can't really be aware of other people? I think, yeah, and I think a lot of people were, I mean, it was a horrendous tour that they had. And I think a lot of people were dealing with their own baggage. But also, Chris was very, it was important how other people looked at him. So if we went out to a mess too, if we went out to a function, he was back to, you know, Jack the Lad. And But it wasn't, I mean, a few people mentioned to me that he wasn't the Chris they knew. But he covered things. He covered things by getting drunk with the lads, so mm. that was seen as normal. It was only those closest, I think, to myself and Jane that saw how much Chris had changed. It is such an incredible story, and we are so grateful to Mindy and Jay for bringing it to us. The one noticeable thing about our guests on the podcast is their humility and honesty. Take Deborah Watson, who's behind Wednesday's Child a not-for-profit organisation that helps support individuals and families who struggle with eating disorders. It was all promoted by her own experience of living with such a condition. I went down a restrictive eating disorder pathway. It's also worth bearing in mind eating disorders aren't just about restriction. So yep. you may have heard of, I'm sure, Colin, words like anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa. Anorexia is the one we associate more with restriction. Bulimia yep. would be more about vomiting. You've got binge, purge, eating disorder. Um, so you've got various variants of eating disorders. But anorexia is the one where it's more closely associated with restriction and losing a significant amount of weight in a short period of time. And that's what happened to me. So it was very visual that Debbie was very, very poorly. And yes, so therefore it was very hard for my family to come to terms with. Also because they weren't a family that they didn't understand it. What, why yeah. did you want to lose weight? You've always loved your food. You like top of the milk on your frosty cereal. What's the matter yeah. with you? Yeah. And so it, it was very, very tough. Um, but I went back to university. I didn't get therapy for a while. And again, you know, we go back to what's different from then to now. We'd know, wouldn't we, some more kind of easy access ways to get that person help. Even then, there was the stigma. Do we tell the doctor that Debbie's not very well? Do we tell the university? Do we, what do we do? Should we try and deal with it ourselves? You know, we just, we wouldn't approach things like that now. And I'm glad we don't. And it's why, I, you know, I'm really proud. One of the things Wednesday's Child, we'll talk about this later, but one of the things Wednesday's Child's doing now is working closely with schools and universities. Yeah. Because we need people to talk about it. And, and we need people to spot these signs, don't we? Um, yeah. I, I, sorry, I'm still a little bit stuck in this issue about, but as a parent, how do you, how do you cope with seeing your child over Christmas, you know, coming back after the first term, and then you're letting them go back out the door, going back again? Yeah. What, have you been able to speak with your 
your parents about that you know about the family well what did they think how did they cope with that I mean that must be I know I I can remember my parents dropping me back and watching my mum just cry and cry and cry because um bear in mind another thing I mentioned earlier one of the personality traits often with people with eating disorders is they are people pleasers perfectionists very Mm -hmm. high achievers you weren't easily going to stop the 20 year old Debbie saying I'm going to quit university it wasn't in my mantra to quit And so I wanted to go back, however poorly I was. And perhaps now the university would refuse me. You know, 20 years on, they would probably say, duty of care, we cannot have you come back. But actually, at the time, everybody was just, nobody was mentioning anything. Um, And and I, you know, I carried on and and I finished my university. And by the time I'd finished, oddly, still while no one was talking about it and mentioning how poorly I was and how you know, really quite unwell I was. I can remember one of the things I had to write to do with my journalism degree in one of my final projects was this sort of double page spread of a newspaper, mocked up newspaper. And my headline in that was stress, study and starvation. And it was all about like the hidden thing of eating disorders, people like me at university. And it was almost like I was saying, hello, does anybody want to talk about this? Um, So by this stage, you'd you'd understood what you were going through. Absolutely. I, I, I could have given you chapter and verse of I knew what was going on in my brain and I knew what I was doing. So when did that penny drop for you? Um, um, so it was it doesn't sound like it was immediate. It doesn't no, sound like no, it was it in wasn't. that first term. It wasn't. But over time, you suddenly realise that this has become your habit. This is your new normal. Mm. And I knew what was happening to me. I wouldn't say I understood as widely, obviously, as I now do about how the brain functions and what it was kind of encouraging me to do. But I was very cognizant I was doing it and that this mm. was deliberate and that mm. I was finding reasons and excuses and ways and means of doing them. So, yes, I was very, very self-aware. But I still had got myself into that point where I'd created this persona for myself. And again, I would say one of the important things to recover from an eating disorder is to ask yourself, what is my identity and what is it now and what might it be? And the fixation on remaining stuck, as many people do with what we call severe and enduring eating disorder for like 10, 15, 20 years, people can become defined by the illness that they have. And we around people with eating disorders can almost exacerbate that because we continue to see them as the sick person. We continue to say, we're really worried about you. We're really worried. And and you're the person that has to go to the regular doctor's appointments for your blood tests and your weigh-ins. If we can undefine ourselves by the eating disorder, we can remember that actually we're also that really vivacious, bubbly auntie, sister, cousin, whatever. We are also that really talented artist, that person who can go and set up a business doing this, or that person who loves dogs, or that person that wants to go and travel overseas. So every time I start a conversation with somebody that has an eating disorder, I always try and say to them, it's not about what's the matter with you, Katie, Joe, Colin. It's what matters to you. Mm. So if I can say to you, Colin, like, it's not about the problem is, Colin, you've got an eating disorder. It's what matters to you here and now. You Mm. want to be a good dad. You want to be able to travel overseas next year. You want to be really good at your job. If I can flip your focus into what makes your brain and your body well enough to achieve that, suddenly you stop thinking about that introverted world. I must stay in this small frame of a body. I must beat myself up. And instead, 
you're opening up your head to thinking about the positives of the future. Mm. It's that aspirational shift. Now, I'm not going to say that, that makes it sound very easy. And, and, and of course, it's not. But I think one of the big parts that we have is defining ourselves where we are or defining ourselves with what we would like to be and what we know is possible for ourselves. Because where there is no hope, then, of course, we say stuff. So that's Deborah Watson talking to me about living with an eating disorder and her work to help others in the same situation through her organisation, Wednesday's Child. I mentioned passion at the very start of this review, so step forward Chris Wiley. Chris created a business so successful based at Hartstead two years ago. Incidentally, so is spelt S-O-W for a very good reason, as Chris has always been fascinated by plants. But the business really took off when Chris, supported by the Prince's Trust and mentored by the legendary gardener Peter Seabrook, discovered and cultivated a unique sweet pea. So I only really got into properly and professionally growing sweet peas about two years ago. Um, I'd, I'd grown them for years before that, but um, only on a very small scale, so in my own garden. But um, but I quickly fell in love with them. Um, and it was after chatting to um, Seedlinks, who are a company in Essex um, who specialise in producing sweet peas and sweet pea seed. Um, I, I started working alongside them and uh, yeah, I grew what um, 12 rows under glass, each 40 metres in length. Um, so you can just you can imagine the the scent as you walk into that glass house. Um, quite incredible. I, I don't know how many sweet pea plants there are in that space, but there's in the thousands. Um, mm. And yeah, that's all for seed production. And I just completely fell in love with it. They're they're tough plants as well. Um, they don't need much attention um, and they grow so tall. They grow sort of double my height. And I just it just amazes me. So uh, tell us a bit about how that's progressed, because obviously in the short time that you've been growing them, you seem to have had a huge amount of success. Yeah, so uh, there's a there's a new sweet pea, which I've been um, looking after, nurturing um, since the first year I um, started doing seed production on such a big scale. Um, I was I was told by the owner of that company, Seedlinks, I just mentioned, um, they said, you should keep that separate, that one, because um, that could be something quite special. Um, so you can have all the rights to it. You can, you can look after it, do whatever you want with it, but I would suggest you keep that separate. And um, my mentor over the last few years in the business has been uh, the late Peter Seabrook. Um, he's just been incredible. His wealth of knowledge, his support, um, you couldn't fault him on anything. Um, he's just been so supportive of me. Um, and he, well, I introduced him to this um, sweet pea variety when he came because sweet peas were his favourite flower. They were the first plant he ever grew from seed. He, he always had a passion for them. Um, so he would visit me sort of every week um, in the summer and uh, he, I, I would show him this sweet pea. And his first reaction when he saw it was, this is just incredible. Um, you need to put that in a seed packet. You need to get that sold uh, mass market because the, the, the scent on that one is, uh, is like no other. Now, most sweet peas do smell nice, but this one smelled exceptional. Um, nice frilly flowers. And uh, well, if he's told me to 
keep it separate and sell it. And the other um, <laughs> chap has said the same thing. This is what I need to do. So when Peter passed away in January this year, I thought it was only right that I name it after the person who had supported me so much in my career. Um, so I named it Sweet Pea, Peter Seabrook. Ah, oh, how wonderful. Now that's had quite a lot of attention subsequently, so I understand. Yeah, it's been quite phenomenal, um, overwhelming, surreal. There are so many words. It's just something I never thought would ever happen. Um, I'd, I'd I always wanted to have my own new plant and um, for this to happen and just fall into place at sort of the right time um, and to be named after such a, a great horticulturalist. I mean, never, never saw that one coming. I said to the RHS, the Royal Horticultural Society, I said, look, I've got this new sweet pea. Peter obviously passed away in January. It was his favourite plant. Um, so can I name it after Peter? I'd, I'd got Peter's um, children's permission to do so. Um, so it, it all kind of went from there. And <laughs> at Chelsea Flower Show this year, it was launched, officially launched to the public, and uh, the Queen attended that day, and I was asked to take a posy up. So that morning, I, I went um, on the train, so I'd taken all these sweet pea cut flowers up on the train, I, I think... I. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I um, sort of surprised quite a few people on the tube. Um, everyone looking at me, staring, thinking, "What the heck is this man doing? Why is it? Why has he got those sweet peas in his hand on the tube?" Um, but um, anyway, I got them there safely. I'd, I'd made a posy up that night. Or, or my, sorry, my wife had made a posy up um, the night before, and uh, it was presented to the Queen, and it was just the most amazing moment and uh, a highlight of my career that I will never forget. So that's Chris Wiley of So Successful, based at Harkstead, a true pioneer when it comes to plants. Flowers too proved an inspiration for Zoe Heyman Cox when it came to naming her small business in memory of her first child. Zoe lost William, who had complex health problems when he was just two hours old. But he lived on through Sweet William's Bakery, the tea room business that Zoe runs in Ipswich. I really didn't have a business plan or a model in mind. I just thought that I'd sort of make some sandwiches and some cakes. And um, as I was talking to this friend about it, it sort of just came about that um, in Williams, my son, um, William, uh, in his funeral, I had the sweet William flower and I just thought, oh, sweet William's Bakery. And it genuinely just came to me like that. Yeah. And it was perfect. It won't be unusual to people who have gone through loss before, um, but there's a need still to be a mother. Um, that's a tricky one, actually, because that language isn't great. I was I was a mother. Um, mm, but to yeah. physically have, have a child in front of you. Yes. Um, and my husband and I, obviously had talked about it we knew that we still wanted um to have a living child and um 13 months to the day that william was born and died little amelia <laughs> joined our family lovely um and there were so many bizarre coincidences between her and him even down to some of the medical care i got with the same people that and this is pure chance because you know, shifts in hospitals are shifts in hospitals. Yeah. 
but there was a lady who dealt with me while I was losing my water with William. She actually delivered Amelia. Amelia, oh. rather than me losing my water, um, Amelia was born half in the sack. So she was a little um, rarity. Um, you know, it's just, it was amazing. But 13 months of the day, um, and she's now uh, four in September, and um, she's an absolute treasure. Lovely. And she's very wise beyond her years. I swear that she's got William in her. Yeah. Um, she's that little bit older, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And no doubt you'll be telling her about a big brother. Um, oh, do you talk knows. to her now? Yes, all about... the time. Yeah, all the time. And fantastic. Actually, she, she has a really good grasp on it. Um, we, had, we had a book, or we have a book called The Invisible String, which I would 100% recommend to any families that are going through any loss, not a child necessarily. But it speaks about how love is like an invisible string between two people. And so wherever you are on the earth or in heaven or whatever, you are attached by this invisible string. And she'll talk about how she's just tugged on his invisible string or, you know, it's, re it's really nice. And she's grasped that and she talks about him a lot. She talks about why she's sad that he came first and not her. And I find I'm finding that harder and harder every time she yeah. it because she's getting older and her conversation is much more grown up. Um, but she she tells me she misses him and it's it's very sad. It's it's a whole other dimension to grief that I'm now going to be walking through as well. Yeah. So learning. Yeah. And and I guess if there's any comfort to all of that is the fact that as you said, you had the time with William. Yes. So you have um you have experiences that you can talk through with Amelia yes. in that case. Yes. So um you can describe him and you've got yes. something very tangible to relate to. Yeah, absolutely. Zoe Heyman-Cox there and the remarkable and moving story behind her business, Sweet Williams Bakery. Finally, in this review of the Suffolk Money Podcast 2022, the story of Ollie Magnus, who runs the logistics company Magnus Group. Driven, he says, by a fierce determination to prove wrong the people who he felt were expecting him to fail. In 2022, he picked up a prestigious business award. It was, he says, the proudest moment of his life. I, I do underestimate myself a lot sometimes, but, you know, to be here is such a... It feels like I've climbed the mountain, but yeah. not at the top of the mountain because I've still got the top of the mountain in my sights. Yeah, but the progress you made up it is is yeah. amazing. Yeah. And, and and I suppose that that award gave you the opportunity to look back and well sort of almost admire the view if if there is such a thing of of just seeing how far you've come. <laughs> yeah, I've had a lot of people say some pretty damning things about me to my face and uh behind my back. Um and a lot of them are people I'm I thought I was very close to. So that's 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 never nice. Um, but it just it just quietens quietens those voices, doesn't mm. it? You know? So since since you've taken over, obviously you've had a lot of growth. You mentioned COVID and um mm. warehousing and you've been able to therefore accommodate a lot more business, which were decisions that you took fairly early on mm. in the process. But you've also worked very hard on your publicity and yeah. your marketing. Yeah. Um 
that is perhaps one side of business life that a lot of people don't really pay that much attention to. But yeah, how have you gone about that? So that the story with that was um, we had a company called Kuhn and Argyle come into our office. Um, so that would have been the end of 2019. And they, they had a big bit of business. And they said in the boardroom, they said they'd Googled warehouses in the 50-mile radius of um, Felixstowe Port. Now, bear in mind, Magnus Group had been around since the 70s, had a 100,000-square-foot warehouse, didn't even come up on five pages of the internet. I remember, well, I walked out of that, the door, and went, from this moment on, that changes. That changes. We, you know, you, I'm going to raise the profile of Magnus Group. And to do that, I had to raise my own profile. Um, quite, you know, so that's where the social media things came in. I totally rebranded the trucks, went back to the... Um, the original logo so the original logo of Paul Magnus Transport was PM and I've taken the M from that which is the current Magnus thing um current Magnus logo now and just you know it's not rocket science you make yourself visual it's everything is is perception you know if you can if you'd have come here to this office where I am now in 2018 you wouldn't recognize it from where it is now you know the signs were all faded the trees were all over the place, you know. I'm a I'm a big believer in perception. And if you if I'd have bought customers here, they'd have said, Well, are these guys really gonna, you know, care about my business? Um, you know, so it was just changing and we've built the pond and we've just made it made it a nice, a nice place to be. Um and it is it was just you have to get your brand out then. You have to get your brand out there. Now, whatever anyone says, however anyone criticizes me, and God, have I had criticism of my social media. I've had so much more positives, but I've I've taken a lot of criticism over the years, but I've stuck with it um, because it's a huge positive. I, I always say you can never argue with the facts. The facts are I've got so much business out of it. And Magnus Group is so much more perceptible to the outside world than it was. So what's the downside? Award-winning business director, Ollie Magnus there, ending this review of the Suffolk Money podcast from 2022. My thanks again to all the guests who've joined us for their inspiring stories and their honesty. It's been a privilege to talk about their lives, their hopes and their fears. I'm also indebted every time to the team behind the podcasts, Joy Day and Sally and Kevin Birch. I really couldn't do it without them. And I'm not just saying that, I really couldn't. Um, we'll be back again with another series of guests in the coming weeks. And if there's a person or a story which you think we ought to feature, please do get in touch with us through the Suffolk Money website or through our Facebook page. Our website address is www.suffolkmoney.co.uk. Please do come and find out a bit more about us on our website or our Facebook page, and we'd love to hear some more interesting stories from across Suffolk. But for now, until the next time, it's goodbye.